Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien, and this is episode 49, the 7th of part 7. The topic for today is the problem with Richard Dawkins with respect to evolution. Richard Dawkins as a person has become somewhat synonymous with the idea of evolution, in the sense that he's one of the, its most notable proponents. You know, Richard Dawkins, right, the very name itself, sort of goes hand in hand with Charles Darwin, sort of does. I mean, at least they're surnames look somewhat the same, Daw, Daw, if you get my drift. But most seriously though, Richard Dawkins has built his credibility around the idea of evolution, or rather he is, as a proponent of evolution, he's been able to drive forward the argumentative strength of his position, that God exists or God doesn't exist, religion is true, religion is wrong, etc., etc., on the basis that evolution is true, on the basis that evolution is scientifically valid, that it carries a great degree of truth when it comes to our understanding of life, of the natural world, etc., of human biology, most important. The problem with evolution, I mean, there are many problems, actually. Some of them I've engaged already in the course of the last few episodes, which is general concerns people have, okay, people who are experts in the field have when it comes to what evolution is. What does evolution do? What can it explain? Okay, and really the problem lies with the mechanism of evolution. It's something which Richard Dawkins doesn't seem to engage in any serious way. He essentially assumes, like many people, that that evolution is sufficient, creative, mechanistically, when it comes to issues like the information to produce complex organisms, when it comes to foresight, which is almost a precondition when you think about it, when it comes to the creation of complex life, for example, life that is evolved not just uh, to so live optimally in a, in a certain physical system, but to thrive. Okay, I mean, put a simple example, I mean, as human beings, we could have evolved to live happily ever after, so to speak, on planet Earth. There's no reason for us to develop capabilities that will help us go to the moon, for example, okay? I mean, there are many questions we can ask. I mean, the point is, evolution has issues when it comes to, when it comes to the mechanism itself, but also when it comes to what evolution is broadly, when you look at the world, when you look at a society, okay? Does a survival imperative necessarily apply to human behavior, okay? And that's another area that we can look into, right? I mean, it's kind of funny because the idea of survival and competition and reproduction is so central to to the Darwinian framework. And that is supposedly what brought us thus far, right? It is what gave rise to our life or our way of life. That we evolved from primal beings to the creatures that we are today. But then, if you look at the world today, we don't really live like that, do we? You know, people aren't solely driven by a survivalist imperative. There are other factors that drive human behavior and motivation. I mean, it's like... I mean, just take the replication value, right, which is so central to the Darwinian framework of survival, okay, of the need to reproduce. Not, not everyone lives their life that way, right? I mean, certainly in the religious tradition, we have this of people, you know, leading celibate lives. Of course, you can dispute its importance and validity. On the other hand, people do commit themselves to a greater cause, and that entails sacrifice, commitment, hard work. I mean, they could be doing other things. It's like human aspiration, like someone like Elon Musk, who has enough money to do whatever the hell he wants, He's not happy. He works. If you read his you know, biography, which I did, it's a really good book. And if you look at him now, he's I think one of the richest people in the world. He can just say, you know what, fine, I have everything I need. I have money, I have the status, I have the recognition. I can just, you know, sit back, do whatever I want, you know, live on a yacht, live, buy up an island in the Caribbean. You know, you can pretty much do anything. And money really does buy almost anything, including, uh, you know, relationships. If you get my shift, I mean, it is a key a factor and then it just enables you to do what you want, but human nature is not like that, okay? We're not just survival, driven by survival, at least at a, not a base level, okay? We have higher aspirations. And the evolutionary framework, as far as I can understand, doesn't really factor that in. It makes more sense within a Christian, certainly in a theistic framework, 
to become the master of creation. Okay, that kind of thinking, which is I think true to human beings, okay, it's inherent to all of us. That seems to correspond more strongly to a Christian worldview. Now, of course, these are broad brush concerns. I mean, there's mechanistic issues which we already engaged in the last episode. Some of them, but then there are more broader philosophical questions about of evolution, right? And critically, I think when it comes to human behavior and things like altruism, things like sacrifice, things like brotherhood, evolution again it has many issues. But again, we can discuss these things you know, until the cows come home. But the point is, evolution has issues. But critically, critically, evolution, however, does explain certain aspects of the human psyche of human nature quite well, particularly when it comes to the idea of growth and development at the level of the individual, speaking of the organism itself, and at the level of the collective, speaking of groups, species level, understanding of evolution. So when it comes to Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, again, as we know, he's a strong proponent of evolution, the Darwinian evolution, which is very naturalistic, which has no divine hand guiding it or directing it. Evolution as a theory is very much aimed towards the the survival imperative, okay, to endure, to, to resist uh, pressure from the outside, or rather being able to adapt to it. And also at the same time to procreate, replicate. The replication character is very central to Richard Dawkins' understanding of evolution. In fact, his whole idea of memes and genes, you know, that they just create and they spread out, they seem, how can I say, self-contained almost, right? They um, seem to act with a will of their own, the need to expand and procreate and so on. And he's written a number of things on this particular subject. What I'm trying to get at here is, is that Richard Dawkins is right in many respects when it comes to the urge to reproduce, the urge to grow and expand. But, again, this is the important point, but it is nonetheless somewhat simplistic in a problematic way. So let's break this down a minute, okay? So if human beings are driven by the will to survive, okay, and to reproduce, okay, and to replicate, etc., you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will do it. That doesn't necessarily mean that we will act on it. Okay, there's a question of volition, the question of choice, because as conscious beings, unlike other creatures, we're not driven by pure instinct. Now, of course, people like Richard Dawkins, who subscribe to, I'm presuming, Daniel Dennett's view of there is no free will, and we can have the discussion later, but the point is that we do exercise our volition. We do choose to say yes or no to certain things. We do make choices when it comes to career or relationships, okay, kind of worldview that we adopt or kind of philosophical system that we embrace. And there are many factors that underlie that decision. And so the point is that evolution as a theory in, in practice is curtailed now because we are exercising our volition in how it can manifest itself. Now, paradoxically, if you look at Christian movie, that in a way makes sense because the idea is that not, it's not a question about whether, how God created us, but the fact that he did create us. Okay, so the exact processes that led us to our current state is not as important. So after all, Charles Darwin or Richard Dawkins, either way, because they both propound the same worldview, it doesn't really matter if they say that we came about to random mutations and selection and whatnot, because now we can make our decisions on what is right and what is important for us and for those around us. And interestingly enough, it is not the survivalist, it is not the competitive, it is not the win-at-all-cost mentality that, that seems to underlie evolution as a theoretical framework. That is not the driving force anymore, okay, if you think about it. So this is important for, for the listener to consider. Okay, when it comes to a question about human life, okay, just because you can point to mechanistic processes which are supposedly non-directional, okay, that's the main assumption. Okay, natural selection presupposes its non-teleological character. Now, interestingly enough, that cannot be scientifically proven or disproven. Okay, we cannot really say whether evolution is purposeful or not. That is essentially assumed because natural selection apparently just does things for survival value. But again, the mechanism itself is flawed fundamentally because it has a serious inadequacy when it comes to producing new information. Again. We are not considering it. 
even if you assume that these things are true, when we get to the level of human beings now, you know, we're not that. Okay, so it sort of raises questions. Okay, if we were so programmed by evolution to survive, etc., etc., you know, why have we stopped behaving that way now? Okay, why do we suddenly become so altruistic and so concerned about our fellow brothers and sisters? Of course, uh, the counter argument here would be I think this is something that Daniel Dennett has proposed is the cultural evolution. Cultures what matters now. So it's not just individual level survival, but it is the survival of the group, it is survival of, of the culture, of the survival of the nation. And that is an important factor driving evolution. So people are able to sort of disempower their highly self survivalist, person centered views for the betterment, for the well being of others, right? The group uh, survival, right? I think there's something, it's not even altruism, really. It's just evolution at, at the level of groups, at the level of communities, at the level of even states or nation states. So that is very interesting. So essentially, evolution is being disciplined, right, as a survivalist competitive uh, framework into something much more inclusive, but it still maintains key characteristics that drove it at the level of the individual species that ultimately gave rise to us. Now, listen, I'm, I'm saying all these things just to sort of lay the groundwork for the main problem, I think, with, with Richard Dawkins, and that, which is that he, despite being a proponent of evolution, right, in terms of its survivalist, competitive, right, in terms of its, how can I say, the need to evolve and survive and become better and stronger and tougher, right, to be able to outcompete. What is the Survivor? There's a show, right? I like the Survivor. It's a good show. I used to watch it quite closely. What is it? Outwit, outplay, and outlast. That was the tagline was it not so yeah that that is true i think that framework does apply at the level of the individual and of course at the level of the collective at varying levels the problem is this if that is the case if we are trying to survive as groups as communities as peoples as nation states or as the west okay it's a culture okay which transcends the nation state itself does evolution that is untethered or rather a culture that is untethered from a religious worldview be better adapted to do so this is interesting. Think of it this way. Since evolution is what gave rise, let's assume that we were competitive, struggling, fighting, and ultimately we got here, right? We outcompeted whoever else that was uh, opposing us. Maybe they were better or superior creatures, whatever, whatnot. And human beings today are the most powerful species on the planet, although we're not the most not the most prominent in terms of numbers, because ants, insects are much you know greater. Viruses are our friends and are on our foes at the same time, because viruses are not fully understood. They've been around for quite a while. And also, of course, the natural environment is not entirely subdued. This goes back to my earlier point about the civilizational question, right? We're not a type one civilization. Until we gain full mastery over this planet and able to prevent earthquakes, stop tornadoes, we can, you know, to a point where we can even deflect asteroids and comets. So, you know, we can essentially gain complete control of our planet. And in fact, when you go to level two, we basically are on the verge of becoming immortal. So, and, and by the way, listener, this is not too far away from from reality. I mean, we're continuously trying to make life better, right? And this is a critical facet of humanism, okay? In fact, this is even espoused by, of course, understandably espoused by secular thinkers who are humanistic. So the idea of betterment at the individual and at the collective is important. For example, now there's a lot of research into old age, how we can stop old age, at least slow it down. Age-related research is about endurance, right? It's about ensuring the continuity of the human species. We grow and that we be able to survive. But more importantly, it's driven by an individual imperative to live, right? We want to live you know, the will to survive, the will to endure, the will to, to establish your presence in this world. That's very much part of who we are. I mean, I mean, let's be real, right? Why do we do things, right? Like exercise or like eating healthy, you know, there are new diets, diets that are out there, taking vitamins, improving our mental health, like meditation, going out, anything, relaxing music, you know, good communities, good fellowships, etc., etc. Why do we do, do these things? 
one thing, we want to be happy, happy in, in quotation marks, I don't like that word, but the same is about continuity. It's about if you're doing well now, you're more likely to live well in the future. You know, like for example, stress reduction. And, and being calm and being sort of in sync with the world around you, that, that's going to help you live longer and happier. So happier, okay? I mean, you got to replace a damn word, I'll tell you. But anyway, my point is, listener, we are driven to live. We are driven to survive. We are driven to thrive. We want to thrive in this world as individuals and at the collective. My question is, listener, when it comes to the question about evolution, okay, which now, level of human society, you're looking at the collective, okay, at groups, at communities, at, at social groups. Does the religious dimension aid this process? Now, again, I don't want to read too much into the various statistics that say that, you know, religion helps people live longer or that it helps people with mental health. I mean, there are some statistics like it. I think Rupert Sheldrake is one thinker from England. He's spoken about this, that religions actually, being religious actually helps you in terms of dealing with difficulties. And, you know, maybe people are happier as well, although I would put that down to the communal dimension. It's not really you know, religion itself, but rather it's the secondary factors like the community, like the social presence, being a part of something that, the sense of belonging that that it creates. And so it's like the secondary factors that are there, which could be acquired or attained or experienced in a different framework. It could be secular or religious. It's not really the divine aspect per se, but it's mostly the communal aspect, which can be, one, you can find better secular or humanistic alternatives if one seeks them out. But my point listen, is that religions nonetheless do confer some advantage on those who choose to embrace it at a functional level. They have communities, they have, they have access to a framework in which they can express themselves, they can talk, they can share, they can build networks. A lot of people end up meeting their partners, you know, in, in religious communities, which is understandable, so that's a good thing. Uh, my point, listen, okay, looking at the bigger picture, at society, at culture, okay, does religion, this religion in a, in a Darwinian sense, in an evolutionary sense, confer any kind of advantage, any kind of survival advantage, okay? And the answer, interestingly enough, is yes. Think about this, okay, what is happening in the world today? what is happening look at the west the west is secular europe in particular but i think increasingly even america and i think more broadly western countries like countries which have a i don't know anglo-american or european heritage and or which are christian speaking of countries which are western meaning they have a ethnic european heritage or and or have a christian heritage okay look at what's happening to them all across the world these are the countries which are secularizing okay mind you secularism is predominantly a western phenomenon although religion is sort of transforming in other parts of the world, but the decline in religiosity is very, uh, very notable, very real in the West, okay, in Europe and countries which have a European heritage. The problem is this, as as religion declines in the Western world, again, Europe is a good example, Europe, I think the whole European continent, East, West, North, whole of it, what is happening is that the populations are declining, the demographic strength of these nation states are weakening, and that is a point of concern, because after all, look at Darwinism. It is why it's about survival, the survival of the individual and later of the group. And ultimately, you know, the group expands, right? In our case, we have human communities that expands into tribes and then social groups, social organizations. They expand onward until they become cultures and states and nation states. Of course, culture transcends, transcends national boundaries. But the point remains that religion is a key factor in the formation of society. And this is a point I've already engaged in. People like Daniel Dennett themselves have affirm that religion is universal. All cultures have a religion of their own, okay? So it uh, means that religion itself is integral to the formation of culture, okay? And this is something that sociologists have looked into, right? I think Emil Durkheim, I think. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's a French sociologist, and he looked into the, the origins of religion and its universal character. The point being, religion is part of who we are. And when religion declines, or when the religious sensibility declines, that seems to go hand in hand with the decline in culture and vis-a-vis -vis the society at the human level. Look at it this way, listener. Culture is it's a product of humanity. 
human beings give rise to culture. Culture does not exist in an abstract sense, okay? It's us, it's our behaviors, our practices, our norms, our values, and how we manifest them outwardly in the real world, okay? And religion is a key aspect of culture. I mean, one of the criticisms that we have of the Westerly countries like America is that it's cultureless, okay? mainly because lack of religion. Okay, without religion, what, what is our culture really? Of course, you can say it's Hollywood, it's Broadway, it's, I don't know, maybe Silicon Valley. You know, you can say that there, there are subcultures operative there, but those things, you know, you can you, you can replicate. I mean, other countries can have them, maybe not as well. But the point is, that what defines a country? What defines a society? Okay, what is its value system? What is its underlying ethic? It needs to be something integral. It needs to be something unifying. It needs to be something that's transcendental that goes beyond immediate concerns of politics, of money, and security, etc. These things are important, but they're not going to, you know, they, they don't provide this, the mesh, the, the solid groundwork which can unite them amongst common values and principles. Of course, today we have these, you know, new secular alternatives like feminism, the LGBTQ movement, climate change, all these kinds of things. Critically, though, at the level of culture, at a more broader civilizational level, the decline in Christianity, again, the decline in faith, has come at the price of decline the decline of, of the West, demographically speaking. Now look at this from a Darwinian perspective. What does Darwinism say ultimately? It's about survival. It's about growth. It's about endurance of the species, okay, at the collective and at the individual. So the question is this, if survival is such an important factor, okay, isn't religion a force which actually aids it? See, Darwinism is about in, of a species, either in terms of its genetic character or in terms of its broader organism, right, encompassing the phenotype and the genotype, right, and how we can ex exist in a certain environment. That is expanded further into the level of populations, population genetics, right? Organisms which have certain features or certain set of features, then they would go on and reproduce and they are best adapted. Or they would go on and reproduce owing to the fact that they're best adapted to the external environment and in terms of their own physical strength or fitness. Now, the logic is this. If you apply that to the level of groups, okay, whether it's cultures, states, or nation states, or peoples, or racial groups, okay, what we're getting at here is that religion, in a paradoxical way, is actually more reinforcing more supportive of the question of survival. Europe's decline demographically has gone hand in hand with the decline of religion, decline of Christianity. That is unequivocal. If you look at any studies, just Google Europe's demographic decline, okay, Europe's demographic, and look at the projections, especially not, not only declining, uh, decline now because it's below replacement levels, the birth rates, right? That is say Europeans or European women are having less than two children, okay? That's, that's below the, the replacement level. It means you're not surviving. The few generations, it's going to shrink progressively, I think, in Italy and so on. I think the current generation, or the next generation, they won't have any cousins or something, right? It's pretty bad. The question is, is and if this keeps up for decades or two decades, Europe will get smaller and smaller. Culturally, think about this, cultural decline. So the ethnic decline would essentially presupposes the decline that is to come, culturally. So things like secularism and humanism and feminism and all these other left-wing or secular ideologies, right, which are predicated on a certain culture, in this case Europe, which has become less Christian, that in itself is doomed to its own downfall. In many ways, secularism sows a seeds of its own destruction because the people themselves will stop believing in the value of life. They won't have kids. Like, for example, I think in Spain, abortion rates are like really high. Now, I'm not here to discuss the moral aspects of abortion. Right? That's a different subject. But just purely from a demographic perspective, if one in three pregnancies in Spain ends in an abortion, that future generation being wiped out. Children or potential Spaniards or potential Europeans okay, are going to be called out even before they ever get a chance at living their life in this world, okay? What does that mean? It means that an entire generation of Europeans, I'm using Europe as an example here, okay, just to make this particular point, are not going to exist. What happens then? What happens to the, the secular imperative to promote values? What values? You're not going to exist. But what is happening? And this is the interesting point. This is the counter argument, which actually reinforces the religious argument. It is that 
societies which are religious, okay, like the Islamic world, most notably, are growing. They're growing exponentially. If you look at the birth rates in the Islamic world, particularly you know Pakistan, which is the birth rates are so fast, Indonesia and, and certainly Sub-Saharan Africa or other North Africa, North Africa is Islamic, right? The birth rates are much much higher, okay, and they are set to grow for the next decade or two. And if you look at the projections, and this is a critical point, Islam, if I'm not mistaken, is set to become the largest religion in the world. Okay, and in fact, there was an article on the Guardian. Have a look at this, right? Islam, the largest religion. Google this, right? And then I think there's an article on the Guardian. How by I think 2075, Islam will be the largest religion in the world in terms of sheer number. So the total number of Muslims in this world will be larger than Christians. Of course, we know, you know most Christians, quote unquote, are pretty much secular. They're nominal, right? They don't, they don't really practice their faith and they don't take it seriously. So Islam is going to go stronger, bigger, and it'll be more influential culturally. Because people in the West who are Christian, quote unquote, are not Christian. They embrace secular values like feminism and LGBTQ movements and and the climate change and things. And again, I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not trying to belittle them. I'm not trying to criticize them. But the question is, like, is that unifying? Is it going to bring people together? Is it going to lay the groundwork for future civilization? And this is critical, especially unless you think about secular alternatives like feminism and the LGBTQ movement and also climate change. So I don't want to, I'll probably engage this later on at another point. But if you look at all of them, what they have in common, interestingly enough, is they're not very heteronormative in the sense that they're not very oriented towards reproduction, right? If you look at climate change, it's about controlling human activities, about Therapogenic climate change is human-driven, right? Obviously, as the term implies, that means only way to negate that is to reduce the human population, right? It's funny, you know, less sex, less kids, more abortions, more contraception, whatever. And then we are there. We'll save the planet. Although what will happen then is that it'll be the West that will be saving the planet. But they would not be there to, to see the future because I mean, these are, of course, speculations. Listen, I'm not trying to you know say that these things are going to happen. But if you look at the numbers, you know, these projections aren't too far off. I mean... You know, you cannot build a civilization, you know, without people. You need human beings. And critically, in my view, you need people from the West. And this is a critical point when it comes to immigration. Right? Why is immigration going in a single direction? Why is it, you know, people from the Arab world and the African countries and so on going to the West? Because these countries are more developed, but they don't have people. They don't have the human capital. They don't have the biological fecundity that is required to drive humanity forward. African countries, Islamic countries are less developed, but they have more kids. My point, listener, is that looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, the Darwinian view of evolution, okay? What we're getting at is that religion actually aids the survival of human beings because it drives forward the idea of reproduction. Critical. Procreation becomes central to the equation of human life. And that, that makes perfect sense. Because, I mean, after all, you know, religions value life. God gave us the capacity to produce life and it's only right that we do it. The only problem is that in the West, you know, people like life, they want to live, but they don't, you know, they aren't taking it forward. Basically, it comes down to sex, okay? People like having sex, but the question is, what are you going to do afterwards? Are you going to followed through on, on the procreative dimension. That part has been negated for whatever reason. But looking at this purely from a Darwinian perspective, that is going to cost you. That's going to cost the West. Western culture will fall as far as I'm concerned if this keeps up. If you don't reproduce sufficiently, you know, we're going to end up in trouble with cultures which are religious. Now think about this for a second. Okay? The West will secularize and open itself up to the world, but the people who come into the West will, will be religious of a different variety. They'll be Islamic, they'll be African beliefs, whatever. Like, for example, the FGM, right? The, the female genital thing, which is predominantly coming from Africa. And that's not very Christian, as far as I know. I think there's certain primitive beliefs that support it. You're going to see these things being imported into the West. And again, I'm not saying it's necessarily good or bad. I don't know. The point is, listener, we will be replacing our Western Christian worldview with something else. And it'll be religious, paradoxically, not just our own kind of religion. That is something for us to consider. Right, next one. Here we have a sort of a dilemma here. Is religion good for society or is it bad for society? I think on the question of demographics and the question of life, the answer is good. And let me give you one example, okay? Specifically a Christian example. I knew people that 
who were in this religious group, right, which came out of Italy or Spain. I think it was Spanish, but it was predominantly it was predominantly in Italy and Spain. And now it's, you find that in many countries. Okay, so it's a Catholic organization, right? It's very conservative. It's very traditional. It's, it's almost like it sort of goes back to the early church and it's trying to replay the, the church in its formative years, okay, in terms of how it grew in the catacombs, okay, during the Roman Empire. And it was, it's very, it was a very, it's kind of Jewish version of Catholicism, right? And this is, it borrows heavily and tries to maintain the connection between Judaism and Catholicism. It's like the menorah, like the operating Jewish music, right, uh, language, and so on. Anyway, it's very conservative, okay? My point is not that not its semantic character, but rather it's um, very conservative views on morality and family and so on. Again, I'm not saying this is not necessarily problematic, but one of the things that was quite different about this particular group was its emphasis on family, on marriage, okay? And preceding that on things like chastity and virginity, right? Now, I think the listener would probably understand where this is going. The point is, listener, this group, it's very conservative Catholic group, religious community, you find them in many parts of it. I won't mention the name here. But anyway, they had a strong focus on family, which meant essentially promoting a non-contraceptive so it's all about, you know, being good, being, you know, following God, you know, serving God, etc., etc. But what it comes down to in practice is that to encourage people to get married, okay, or to become, you know, go into religious orders, that's something you'd expect. And at the same time, you know, encouraging, you know, women to, you know, stay virginal, men to be celibate, men to be virgins, because, you know, that's, that's going to help the project, understandably, I guess, and not to divorce and all these kinds of things. But critically, the key variable that was, you know, that was quite out there was the demographics, was the familial dimension, right? So the fact that they discouraged things like, they discouraged artificial or natural contraception, both of them, you know, these people had a lot of kids, right? You know, huge families. I mean, there, there, there were like some families with eight kids, nine kids, some of them over 10, almost a dozen, man. I, I've seen it, okay? Some people have, you know, five, six, seven, all the way up to 10. It's crazy. And and the idea is that, oh, God is giving them these kids, right? Now, again, I'm not trying to you know, dismiss their views. I don't know, belittle them. I mean, after all, having kids is a good thing. I think it's a good idea that people have kids. But the point is that one way faith grows is through, through reproduction, right? And the Islamic world is, it's exemplar, right? It's grown so fast. It's growing so fast because of its demographic question, okay? The women get married quite young and they, you know, start having kids earlier. They're less career-oriented. They're less, and they're less enamored by, you know, secular ideologies like feminism. So this Christian group seems to espouse the same value system in terms of our belief, okay? It wants to make Christianity more conservative, more familial. Now, why am I saying this? What is the point of this uh, example, okay? The point is, this group, okay, is quite prominent, as I mentioned, in Spain and Italy, and they've been studying the effects of, of their expansion, okay? So, for example, I encountered, there was this book, okay, on their, this group has been around for decades, going all the way back to the, I don't know, 80s, probably 70s, I think, or maybe even before that. My point is, listener, this group has been tracking its performance, okay, <laughs> to use the word, in terms of the growth in communities, religious communities, which, which espouse their views, but at the same time, the rise in families, okay, who are within those communities, and they were telling, they were observing and, and basically compiling data, right? And this is important on the growth in families and vis-a-vis -vis demographics. Interesting, isn't it? So these religious guys, basically a certain Catholic group, right? And they were preaching and they were proselytizing and building these communities. But then in those communities, they were encouraging people to get married, have kids and not use contraception all because, you know, God wills it, right? But critically, though, the end point was that people having more kids, and critically in the you know European context like Spain and Italy, this is an anomaly because we Europeans, especially in those countries, are not having kids at all. So my point, listen, is this: religion, in a sense, can aid. I would argue it will aid the survival of, of societies because it focuses on the question about life. Now, if you think about it, in, in Europe, the main problem today is life. Okay, the Europeans are not reproducing. People in the West, and not only Europe, but even America as well. In America, has the same issue, especially the European Americans. The procreative dimension is very weak, even in America. 
So the point is, listener, religion does aid this process. And in a paradoxical way, it is a good thing. In a way that is pro-evolution. Because evolution is all about survival, it's about growth, it's about survival, it's about endurance of the individual, of the group, of the community, of the culture, of the state, and of the nation state as a whole. Or in our case, Western civilization. So this is the point, listener. You know, people like Richard Dawkins promote evolution and whatnot, but the consequence of, of evolutionary thinking, which is the Darwinian one, which is this ultimately leads to secularism, the rejection of God. The rejection of God leads to the rejection of certain values like family, like tradition, like you know, women having more traditional roles, like having kids, right? I mean, you know, women don't have many kids in the West. And this is partly a consequence of the lack of religiosity. And so we see the ultimate effect of this on society, the decline of the West demographically. And this is not a new problem, listener. I mean, I can point to certain examples in, in Europe's history, which I don't want to bring up here. And in fact, let me just, you know, just sort of direct you in that particular direction. I don't want to be the one telling you what that is. I want to go back to the book itself, okay, the book by Charles Darwin. And Interestingly enough, listener, you don't hear this that often. When you speak about Charles Darwin and his book, Origin of Species, which we know doesn't speak about the origin of life, okay, this is the point we have to consider. It does not explain to us or tell us anything about as far as anything substantial about the origin of life. As you'd expect, I mean, this was, you know, hundreds of years ago before there were advances in microscopic technology, before there were advances in electronics. Before. Point is, listener, Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, does not deal with the origin of species, but rather with the survival of species. So let me just read to you the title of his book. Okay, this is interesting. I'm very interesting. Okay, so here it is. The full title of Charles Darwin's book is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Well, now, if you think about that, I think you know, we know where this is going. Leaving aside the word race, you know, the survival is imperative as a competition. I don't want to say anything more, listen, at this point, but just consider this. Religion, if it aids the demographic question, if it enables people, encourages people to have more kids, in this case, the Western European, or those who have that heritage, then is that, is that good? Is that advantageous? And the answer is yes, because secularism clearly leads in the opposite direction. Okay, all the secular ideology, like feminism, which is highly pro-abortion, pro-contraception, okay, and even the LGBTQ thing, as far as I can see, is not very pro-creative, as those guys are not going to have that many kids. With all due respect, I don't mean that offensively, but, you know, it's a fair conjecture that the more you move down in that direction, the pro-creative damage is going to weaken, but the problem is only weakening in the West. It's only weakening in the Christian world. It's only weakening in the European world, okay? Those which have a European heritage or those which have a Christian heritage. And atheism and evolution or Darwinian evolution, it seems to promote that is not aiding it. It's weakening the West. It's working to undermine Western culture. That is a problem. Now, this is not to say religion is perfect, but the point remains that the religious dimension is important in this context. Now, of course, religions need to evolve. This is something I've already argued, that religions cannot stay the way they are at the moment. They have to become something else. They need to become better. But in this context, we need to consider that evolution aids the survival of species. And now, paradoxically, now this is the real, I think, the hypocrisy of Richard Dawkins. This is a critic of Richard Dawkins, in case we missed that. Richard Dawkins speaks about evolution, but he doesn't understand its, its hermeneutic value when it comes to looking at society today. Look at what he has to say on this particular issue, right? And I know he's trying to be an altruist, trying to be inclusive, and I think you know, he was speaking to some you know, woman who was you know, politically on the left when he mentioned this, but, but look at what he has to say, right? Quote, this is in an interview with the woman Levin, I think. We have removed ourselves from Darwinism. I often said that I'm a staunch Darwinist when it comes to explaining why we are the way we are, but I'm a passionate anti-Darwinist when it comes to prescribing how to organize our society and how to organize our politics. Now, okay, now I can understand the sentiment. It's very moral, very ethical. He's trying to be a good guy. You know, we don't want to, you know, essentially we don't want to be called Nazis, right? With, you know, social Darwinist. That's what he's trying to say. Social Darwinism 
and underlying social biology is something that you know he's opposing right fine but the point remains that even it's just by choosing to not look at society through a darwinian lens it's not going to make it go away because darwinism at a certain level is true and i agree with the evolutionary framework we need to survive we need to evolve we need to endure okay that is a it's a fact of life it's like capitalism right companies that do well survive the companies that don't will get wiped out and that's what you call shampata's creative destruction right the ones which are able to adapt and outcompete and, and essentially out evolve other would move on the others will be called out and they'll be you know left adrift okay and that broadly applies to other areas of life it even applies to relationships like, i mean think about it, right why do some guys do well with the ladies like the people who are rich and, and popular and, and powerful whereas other guys you know just end up you know a bunch of losers on the streets and in prisons and then going that truth applies to religions as well it applies to cultures as well okay if european cultures are not strong demographically they're not reproducing then you get all these people flooding into your countries and they're not going to integrate they're not going to assimilate and then you know that might pose political questions in the future so it's not a question about you know thinking like a social dog but it's about being realistic about the nature of reality which in this context means we need to think in evolutionary terms even religions need to think in evolutionary sense because you know just talking about morality is not going to get us anywhere but this is something for us to consider so richard dawkins is a coward and i think a hypocrite in this context because he promotes evolution but he's he's fearful of it he doesn't he doesn't engage it for what it is and i know this for a fact and knowing the islamic world i'm somewhat familiar with the way they think people in the islamic world i don't mean this is a critical way they know that their time is coming people in the islamic world know that they're they're going to take over in in a sense that because the demographics just favor them right they know europeans are going to decline and shrink and 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 collapse out at the same time you know ideologies like feminism and the lgbtq and the climate change people that's not going to save us as far as i'm concerned at least not from a demographic shortfall which is a much more imminent problem than than uh, anthropogenic global warming so these are factors for us to consider listen and again i'm not saying this in a way to criticize people who are feminists who are part of the lgbtq thing or the climate change group but we need to be realistic about the human question demographics is key it is real it is central to our life and in a paradoxical way it is it's significant in an evolutionary sense and to deny it when this case deny the importance of religion to that question is well you're just kidding yourself All right folks this is the new humanist podcast this is episode 49 the 7th of part 7 i'm damian and see you guys next